0: It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas. And uh, we are so glad that you are here this morning. Uh, If you want to open your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Matthew 5, 27 through 30 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are white and blue paperback Bibles on this table in the back. can go grab one of those you can just look up Matthew 5 27 through 30 on your device we're in the English standard version the ESV for short if you want to look it up on your device if you do have one of the black or uh, blue or the white or blue paperback Bibles uh, Matthew 5 27 through 30 will be on page 472 this morning um All right, we are going to dig into Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. As we dig in, we are going to see uh, that as people pursuing whole person righteousness, we've been on this subject of whole person righteousness. This is the the greater or exceeding righteousness that Jesus calls his kingdom citizens to in the Sermon on the Mount. And we've seen that it's uh, whole person righteousness is not... um, Whole person righteousness, it's, it's juxtaposed or contrasted by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, to a hypocritical or partial or merely external righteousness. Whole person righteousness is a deeper righteousness. It's a righteousness not just of external acts, external deeds. It's a righteousness of thought, word, and deed. This is the kind of righteousness that he's calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. And we come to a particular command and Jesus shows us how he applies this, this principle of whole person righteousness to this particular commandment and how uh, we ought to look at this commandment in light of what Jesus is calling us to here. And we see, as people pursuing whole person righteousness, we seek to rid ourselves of all lustful intentions desires, uh, intentions and desires and to fight against sexual immorality in our lives. As people pursuing whole person righteousness... We seek to rid ourselves of all lustful intentions and desires and to fight against sexual immorality in our lives. And we're going to see that as we walk through three points. You might recognize these three points. If you were here two Sundays ago when we walked through the preceding passage, uh, the command explained, the command explored, and the command applied. (coughs) The command explained, explored, and applied. Now, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen... To the words of Jesus here as if he was standing here present to us speaking these words to us himself these words come to us with the very same authority and this is what he says you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and proclamation of your word with the presence and power of your spirit this morning. Work through me and through these words to accomplish your glorious ends for the salvation and sanctification of your people. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And have a seat. <clears throat> well, the, uh, the Christian internet has been abuzz recently in light of some Tragic news released from a somewhat well-known pastor and author, uh, one Joshua Harris. Undoubtedly, some of you are familiar with Joshua Harris. Uh, You cut your youth group teeth on his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Uh, Maybe some of you, like me, you've never read the book. Um, For others, perhaps your parents made you read it growing up. Or Maybe uh, for some of you, your youth pastor, decked out with frosted tips and a backwards visor, handed you the book and had a heart-to-heart with you. Um, yeah, it's funny. Uh, but you know, the, the information that Harris released um, is not funny. It's not funny. Uh, he recently announced via Instagram that his wife and him are separating, and a little later, he announced that he is rejecting the Christian faith now. Interestingly interestingly though, this this news has also caused a lot of discussion uh, regarding and and a lot of criticism of um, purity culture in recent weeks. Uh, The sort of subculture within the church that Joshua Harris was a part of, and that produced his ideology and book. It's the, the culture that promoted his ideology and book. It was the subculture that took to his ideology and book so dogmatically, purity culture. So purity culture uh, is, or, or maybe was, um, a kind of subculture within evangelical Christianity that claimed it was helping people adhere to the biblical instructions regarding sexu- sexuality, um, and, and they taught you know, abstinence outside of marriage, something the Bible uh, obviously teaches. Uh, but then there was a lot of other things as well. There's a lot of other stuff involved too. There's even, uh, unfortunately, a lot of legalism, a lot of shaming of those with pasts of sexual sin and those who stepped out of the parameters of purity culture. And, and some of these parameters were interesting practices, uh, such as, one example, purity pledges. Purity pledges, you know, there were conferences and youth groups and books about making purity pledges, and that's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, It's someone making a vow to be sexually chaste until marriage. Um, Likewise, there were purity rings, uh, a ring that that someone would wear that would let others know that they're waiting until marriage to have sex. And those were made popular from the likes of Miley Cyrus and the Jonas Brothers and Selena Gomez. Um, There were purity balls uh these were like formal dances Uh, that fathers and daughters would uh, attend together to promote virginity and abstinence. There was a lot of talk as well about uh, the way women dress, a lot of legalistic standards about the way women dress. You know, there's a lot of talk about how women ought not wear bikinis or revealing or form-fitting clothing uh, because they might cause their brothers in Christ to to stumble. And uh, Harris's book was sort of forged and released and popularized within this culture. And the book uh, kind of came out with a a lot of instruction about how we ought not date anymore if we're single. Rather, we should court. Dating, according to the book, is part of the problem and and causes of sexual sin. Therefore, instead of dating, courting is better and helps protect one from sexual temptation and sin. Uh, Now, the fact that there's a lot of criticism and discussion about purity culture in this stage is probably too little too late. Uh, These conversations should have been had 10, 15 years ago, uh, before many people were seriously wounded by all of it. Uh, Yet it's good for us to think critically about all this and the claims and practices and theological errors typically uh, found within purity culture. Um, On the other hand, though, part of what worries me when we start talking um, a lot about this and criticizing and correcting purity culture is that we might be heading in, or perhaps are in the midst of, somewhat of a, uh, an overreaction to purity culture within the church. Uh, you know, Martin Luther once talked about how sometimes the church is kind of like a drunk on a donkey. Uh, you know, at times, the the drunk on the donkey may start to kind of lean on one side and maybe be in danger of falling over, so he overcorrects himself and falls off on the other side. And I'm, I'm afraid we we do this. We're kind of like a drunk on a donkey, we we do this, I'm afraid we could do this, with our uh, criticism and correction of purity culture, especially in light of our current cultural moment that we inhabit. We inhabit a cultural moment wherein any suppression of almost any sexual desire is seen as deeply immoral and destructive. Um, That's the kind of mindset that's progressively taking hold in our culture. At at best, Christian sexual ethics are seen as outdated. At worst, they're seen as deeply immoral and destructive. And it's in, in the midst of this kind of cultural moment that many are reacting to purity culture and the damage it's done. And of course, you know, purity culture was largely harmful and legalistic and sometimes downright goofy. But don't forget that purity is a good thing. Being sexually chaste until marriage is actually commanded and instructed in Scripture itself. This is, according to God's word, part of living a life of wholeness and human flourishing. He gives us commands and instruction regarding sexuality, not because sex is bad and not because sexual sin is unforgivable. No, God redeems and forgives and restores those with a past of sexual sin. He restores any and all who are broken who come to him. And sex is good. God created sex. It's his idea. It's a good thing. And the reason he gives us commands regarding sex is because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. We flourish when we live according to God's good design. Therefore, his commands are given for our wholeness and even flourishing. So please, by all means, reject purity culture, but don't reject the Bible's teaching regarding purity. With that said, though, one of the interesting things that you might have noticed in the brief description I just gave a few seconds ago about purity culture is that it's largely concerned with and even consumed with at times externals, externals, typically extra-biblical externals too, extra-biblical meaning things not prescribed or commanded in the Bible, things like abstinence vows and purity balls and instead of dating, courting and legalistic standards about what women can and can't wear and all sorts of odd things like that. It was largely concerned with and consumed with externals. It was seeking to address problems of sexual sin with courting and rings and dances and events and the like. You see, part of the problem with that, among many of the problems associated with purity culture, is this, it largely failed to get to the heart of the matter and that it failed to address the heart. The heart of the matter, with all sin, including sexual sin, is the heart. Impurity culture, addressed extra-biblical externals, but largely addressed to fail the internal issues of the heart. It mostly wasn't concerned with what we've been calling whole person righteousness, this deeper righteousness. It was concerned with a partial righteousness, a mere external righteousness, the mere appearance of righteousness, and that misses the mark completely. Now, Jesus actually addresses this sort of thing in Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, he says that it's not actually the externals that makes a person unclean or a people or a culture unclean. It's actually what lies within. Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person, he says. Where do adultery and sexual immorality come from? They come from the heart. So addressing sexual struggles and sins and whatnot merely from the point of extra-biblical externals completely misses the point in that it fails to get to the heart of the matter, namely the heart. But Jesus here, he doesn't fail to get at the heart. And James K. Smith was exactly right when he wrote this quote that's in your bulletin. He says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, or we might add our, our actions and deeds, But forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas in your mind. He's after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. So as we saw two Sundays ago, we see this week Jesus takes the commandments of God and makes a beeline for our hearts. And he does that here as he shows what the seed of adultery and sexual immorality is in the heart. Look at the command explained in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he starts by taking us to the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. What is adultery? So at its most basic definition, adultery involves a married man or woman having sexual relationships with someone other than his or her spouse. It involves a married man or woman having sexual relationships with someone other than his or her spouse. Spouse. And of course, like we saw two Sundays ago with murder, it likely won't come as a surprise to most of us in the room that this is included in the Ten Commandments. You know, even if one is not familiar with the Ten Commandments, one will still likely recognize the destructiveness of idolatry because we're made in the image of God. We're endowed with a, with a conscience. Even if our consciences are dulled and suppressed by ongoing sinful habits, we still have this sense that there's something deeply problematic with adultery. And even within our current cultural context, you know, Mark Sayers says in this great podcast, this cultural moment, he talks about how in the West, in the past, people, even if they didn't abide by Christian biblical sexual ethics, they still saw them as largely good and right and, and good for society. But now they're seen as outdated at best or as deeply immoral and destructive at worst. But still, even within this current cultural moment, people look at adultery and go, yeah, that's, that's bad. That's bad. To cheat on your spouse is a dishonorable and destructive thing to do. And that's actually a point of common ground we should try to use <coughs> in our conversations about sex and biblical sexual ethics, I, I think. Because for the most part, Many people just treat sex as a sort of primal urge in need. They might compare it to eating food or drinking water. You know, it's just something we need to do, and it's not a big deal. It's just a physical activity between two people that doesn't affect us morally or spiritually or emotionally. Tell that to a victim of adultery. Tell tell them that sex is just a physical act that doesn't have moral or spiritual or emotional effects and implications. You can't. Because sex is more than that. Sex is deeply spiritual and moral and emotional. It's a deeply spiritual and moral and emotional act. It's sort of like a sacrament, as, I, as it were. You know, it's a physical sign that signifies a deeper reality. You know, We come every Sunday to the Lord's Supper, and it's signifying something. It's signifying the work of Christ on the cross and our oneness with him through his blood. It's signifying our union with him, and it's actually a moment of communion, of experienced union with him. Well, sex is sort of like that between uh, a a married couple. It signifies their oneness and is actually a participation in an experience of their oneness. That's why we ought to only give ourselves to someone sexually if we've given ourselves to them personally and completely in marriage giving ourselves to someone sexually without giving them, giving ourselves to them covenantally and legally and emotionally and personally and economically and in multiple other ways will only lead to heartbreak and destruction in life. That's why God forbids adultery, not just adultery, but all sexual acts and encounters outside of marriage. But then Jesus shows us here that the implications of this command are deeper and wider than merely the act in deed of adultery. He says that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice that it's wider first. You know, he he doesn't say that if you're married and you look at someone with lustful intent or if you look at someone else who's married with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. No, he says that everyone, everyone who looks at someone else, anyone else with lustful intent has committed adultery in their heart hearts if you're married or single or engaged or whatever if the person you're looking at with lustful intent is single or married or engaged or whatever it doesn't matter if you look at them with lustful intent you've committed adultery with them in your heart and you see it's deeper too Jesus is saying that that this command is not just prohibiting the deed of adultery but the seed of adultery, the seed of adultery that lies underneath the service here is prohibited too. Looking at someone and intentionally imagining sexual encounters with them. Looking at someone and fantasizing about what they might look like without their clothes on. He's not talking about, about looking at someone and noticing their beauty. He's not talking about even a, a fleeting glance that may lead to a uh, uh, that might trigger a sexual thought that is quickly dismissed from your mind. He's talking about you know Martin Luther once he's just got all these great little quotes. He once said you know you can keep bird you can't keep birds from flying over your head but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. You know you might not be able to rid yourself entirely of all initial glances or quick but dismissed thoughts but you can and should. And must keep yourself from going further and treating others as an object or a good for your consumption rather than the image bearer that they are. That's lust. And that is, Jesus is saying here, really that's the seed of adultery in your life. Adultery is the fruit of such a heart. But perhaps the root is there in your heart without your actually committing the act of adultery. Perhaps the seed is there and the fruit hasn't taken place simply because of lack of opportunity. Or perhaps you, you seek to express that root of adultery in other ways, that seed of adultery in other ways in your life, through pornography, through flirtation, through intimate emotional involvement, involvement with someone other than your spouse. Perhaps the fruit of adultery has not yet been done in your life, yet the root of adultery is still there in your heart. But as Saint Methodius of Olympus once wrote, I know you guys probably read him all the time, but I'll quote him nonetheless. As Saint Methodius of Olympus once wrote, it's, it's not merely the fruit of adultery that Jesus commands us to ca- cast out, but it's seed. He's commanding us to cast out the seed of adultery in our lives. It's the command explained. Jesus here, he's explaining the command. He's interpreting it as it was meant to be interpreted, applying it as it was meant to be applied. He explains it for us. As people of whole person righteousness were to cast out both the fruit and seed of adultery in our lives, but now let's explore it. Remember what we're trying to do here. We're trying to answer some questions that might come up in our minds. Perhaps you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you're wondering about the credibility of all this, or perhaps you're, you are a Christian and you're wondering about all this yourself, or you're wondering how you might talk with your friends and family who aren't Christians about something along these lines. So one question that might come to mind very well, might come to mind, is what's the harm? You know, what's what's it hurt? I mean, granted, adultery is a destructive thing. It's destroyed families and lives in the past, and it still does today. But but lust, seriously, doesn't hurt anyone. What's the harm? And to try to answer this question, we need to be a little more detailed about what lust is here so it might be helpful to start by just saying what lust isn't. Lust isn't just synonymous with sexual desire. Okay? Lust isn't synonymous with sexual desire. Seeking to forbid all sexual desire is what we might call sort of a prudish approach to sexuality. But anyone who reads the Bible will see very quickly, if you start in the beginning, you'll see the Bible is not prudish. It does not take a prudish approach to sexuality you we were to go read the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account. See that God is the one who created sexuality, who created sex, and he says it's very good. Sex is his idea. He created, he likes the idea of sex, he created it for us. And in Genesis 2, as one pastor points out, what you see is a naked man and a naked woman, and the man is singing love songs to her in God's presence. Like, sex is a beautiful thing. It's good. Again, you might go read Song of Solomon. It's a love poem about a conversation between a husband and a wife that would likely make some of us blush in the room. Song of Solomon 7, 6 eight, the husband says to his bride, he says, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of the fruit. What is that? It's a man talking about taking hold of his wife's breasts. And likewise, she says about him and." 5, 14 through 15, says his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, the choice as the cedars. Notice how she's looking him up and down and expressing her sexual desire for him. And according to one Old Testament scholar, the translators here have actually played down some of the explicit content. I won't read what he actually says she's saying here because of little ears, but it's pretty shocking. You see, the Bible doesn't condemn sexual desire. Sexual desire is okay. It's it's not just okay, it's good. He created us as sexual beings. Expression of sexual desire is good within its proper context, that of marriage. God created it. It was his idea. Of course, we should say as a little caveat that That expression of sexual desire is not actually necessary to wholeness and human flourishing. For those in our midst who are not married, and for those who will never marry, you know, you're not less of a person, you're not less of a human being, and you're not missing out on anything essential to human nature— Remember, as, as Christians, we believe and worship this one human being who we believe perfectly embodied human flourishing, the only one truly whole human being ever. It's Jesus, and he never got married, and he never had sex. So sexual expression, sexual desire Uh, expression of sexual desire is not necessary to wholeness and human flourishing, but still, with that said, sexual desire and even expression of sexual desire isn't dirty or bad or unclean. As Christians, we don't approach sexual desire prudishly. So then, what is lust and why is it harmful? As Tim Keller helpfully points out, lust is actually impersonal and inordinate sexual desire. And in explaining what lust isn't, we've showed how Christianity is at odds with a prudish approach to sexual desire. Here we see how Christianity is at odds with a pagan view of sexual desire, which is what Jesus is addressing here when he speaks about lust, impersonal and inordinate sexual desire. You see, it's impersonal sexual desire. We already talked a bit about how the proper context for sex is actually a relationship wherein you give yourself to the other person completely. And that relationship is marriage. In marriage, you give yourself to someone covenantally, legally, emotionally, spiritually, economically, physically. You commit your whole self to the person. Well, sex with someone or wanting someone sexually without giving yourself to them in this way is actually impersonal and selfish. It's actually approaching sex and sexuality with a consumeristic mindset. Now, I would suggest that one of the biggest indicators of idols and strongholds in a culture is when something seems to permeate a number of, diff- a number of different aspects in culture. If you look closely, you'll see consumerism is one of those things. So think about consumerism. It's, it's kind of spread into a great number of aspects and activities in our culture. So we approach socializing nowadays, consumeristically. The social media is, this, is socializing made entertainment and consumeristic about rest and recreation. For the vast majority of us, what do we do when we rest and recreate? On a day off, what do we do? How do we define it? Well, it typically involves binging Netflix or shopping or something of the sort. How about church? Many of us even approach church with a consumeristic mindset. We ask questions like, do I like the music? Is the preaching relevant to my concerns? Do they have good programs for my children? Am I comfortable here? How's the seating? Et don't Don't ask that question here. <laughs> we approach weddings in this way. And we're spending extraordinary amounts of money on ceremonies and receptions and flowers and Korean taco food trucks and just crazy things. We could do this all day. But I want to suggest to you that sex outside of marriage, lusting after someone is actually approaching sex with a consumeristic mindset. It's saying, you know, I want this part of you. I want your body. I want you to make me feel good physically, but I don't actually want to give myself to you completely. Instead of treating someone as a human being created in the image of God with intrinsic dignity and worth, it's saying you're a good, you're an object, you're a commodity for me to use, but then discard or at least keep the option of discarding you. It's completely at odds with the Christian ethic of loving one's neighbor as yourself. Christianity says that human beings are made in God's image, possessing intrinsic dignity and worth because of that. And therefore, we owe every single human being our love, even as we love ourselves. But sex outside of marriage and lusting after someone treats them impersonally. It treats them as something less than a human being. That's the first problem with pagan, the pagan approach to sexual desire. It's impersonal. The second problem with lust, Keller says, is that it's inordinate sexual desire. And whenever you see that word lust, you could think of it as being synonymous with the phrase over-desire. To lust after someone or something is not just to desire, it's, it's to over-desire them or it. Like, it's not just that you look at someone and notice their beauty. It's not just that you look at someone and you're attracted. to them. It's that you over-desire them and a sexual encounter with them. It's actually an act of worship and idolatry. It's taking a good thing. Sex and sexual desire, taking a good thing and making it a God thing. It's allowing that desire to overtake you and control your thoughts and your intentions and your speech and your actions. You literally become a subject and servant to sexual desire. Now here's the thing. I think most of us have probably noticed that this is a problem out there in culture, out there in the world. Sex is obviously, systemically speaking, an idolatrous thing in the Western world. I won't even try to defend that statement because I just assume you've seen this and noticed it. But I want you to realize that this can be just as much of a problem in here, in this room, in your heart. Even though you may look respectable and have conservative sexual ethics and the like, you very much still might be consumed with inordinate sexual desire. And by the way, I'm talking to both men and women here. I'm not under the illusion that men struggle with lust more than women. It may manifest itself in different ways. But Fifty Shades of Grey wasn't bought by a largely male audience. So let's try to ask some diagnostic questions to try to identify. You know, one one thing that we look at to discern our own struggles with idolatry and over desires to look at what you think about when you have a free moment or when you daydream when you drift off when you get distracted what do you think about let me ask you do, do you naturally drift into fantasies and daydreams about sexual encounters with others who are not your spouse whether they be real sexual encounters of the past or products of your imagination are there hidden and persistent practices in your life, such as pornography and masturbation, that you haven't confessed to others around you of the same sex? Do you find yourself being overly flirtatious toward others whom you find attractive? Do you find yourself making excuses to watch TV or movies or media with nudity in sexual scenes? Like I, w- I, would, I would hesitate, obviously, to try to prescribe rules against watching certain media. But honestly, I just have to wonder, if you consistently watch media that consistently contains nudity and explicit sexual scenes, why? M- maybe you're doing so with a pure heart. But honestly, I would be absolutely amazed if you were. If you're married, are, 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 are you, have you or are you regularly sharing emotionally intimate information with someone who is not your spouse to whom you are attracted? Now, these and more, they can all be symptoms of inordinate sexual desire. These can be a sign, perhaps, that you're letting sexual desire control you rather than you controlling it. So you see, that's one of the big differences between the Christian approach to sexual desire and the pagan and prudish approaches to sexual desire. Prudish approach says to get rid of it. The pagan view says, let it control you. The Christian approach says to exercise self-control over it. Because if you don't, then your sexual desire will end up controlling you. It will lead you to over-desire. It will lead you to impersonal sexual desire, wherein you treat others not as divine image bearers, but as objects and goods to be consumed. That's the harm in lust. It's destructive and damaging and leads to brokenness in our relationships with others. Now that brings up another big question. And that is this, is, is this realistic? To be honest, we, we don't really have as much time to get into this. We're running out of time. So I'll make this really brief. Is this realistic? Okay, we've established what the harm is, but can we, be, can we really be expected to exercise self-control over even our thoughts, intentions, and desires? Those are just things we can't really control, right? And of course, we've already said you, you, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. You know, the Christian view of human being bestows great dignity upon us in Christianity. Christianity says that human beings are made in the image of God, part of which means that you are endowed with a will. Moreover, as Christians, we are indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Your will, Christian, is empowered by the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. You're not deterministically subject to your thoughts, passions, and desires. Let me say that again. You are not deterministically subject to your thoughts, passions, and desires. Rather, you are filled with the same power and presence of God Himself so that you are able to exercise self-control over your thoughts, passions, and desires. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control. Because the Spirit dwells in you, Christian. You are not deterministically subject to your sinful thoughts, passions, and desires, nor are you so enslaved by sin that you are stuck to in willingly choosing sin again and again in your life. Like, you don't have to sin anymore. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave dwells in you in order to empower you and equip you to exercise self-control over your passions and desires. Who the Son sets free is free indeed, John eight thirty six tells us. You are free. And so is this realistic? If what you're asking is, can you as a Christian increasingly put to death impersonal and inordinate sexual desire in your life, then yes. If you're asking, can you effectively fight sin in your life, then yes. If you are asking, if you can exercise self-control over your passions and desires, then yes, it is absolutely realistic. You can do it. You can change. Not only can you, you must. You must, for the glory of God, for your own good, and for the good of those around you, you must put sin to death in your life. But if you mean, has anyone ever lived this instruction out perfectly, the answer changes a little bit. I'd say, no, no one has has lived this out perfectly except one person, of course, is the one giving us this instruction. He's the only one. He's the only one at the end of the day that can say, I've kept myself pure. Pure in deed and act, but also in desire and intention. You can't say that. I can't say that, but he can. And what's more is that although he alone can say that, he's also the one who is treated as a sinner on the cross for you. He went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, It was that he, although he knew no sin, he became sin for us there. He became our sin, your sin, on the cross. He became the adulterer on the cross. He became the porn addict on the cross. He became the fornicator on the cross. He became the pharisaical, purity culture hypocrite on the cross. He became the person concerned with merely external righteousness. On the cross, he became the luster on the cross. He took that and became that for you. So that, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he took that for you so that you might become the righteousness of God literally, that you might be declared righteous by God so that God doesn't deal with you according to your guilt, but on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, he saved you from your guilt. And of course, he didn't just go to the cross to save you from the guilt of your sin, but he died and rose again to save you from sin's power and presence in your life. And he will complete that work on the day of his return, but he wants to do it even now, presently and progressively in your life. He paid the price for your sin because he wants you to be set free from the power of lust and sexual immorality and adultery in your life. And the Apostle Paul actually says that this is what should motivate us to flee from sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, he says that we are to flee from sexual immorality because we've been bought with a price. The price being Christ's sacrifice of his own body, offering himself as atonement to God on our behalf. You've been bought, you've been redeemed with a price. And such a precious price at that. So let me encourage you and exhort you to flee from lustful thoughts, flee from sexual sin, flee from adultery in thought and in deed, because you were bought with a price. Whenever you're tempted toward an illicit fantasy, whenever you open up that laptop, whenever you flirt with a coworker, whenever you're tempted, remember what Christ has paid. Remember the torture, the nails, the flogging. Remember that he was stripped of his clothes to hang there naked. Remember the agony, the asphyxiation. Remember that he died and took your sin to the grave. How could you want to continue in the sin that crucified someone who loves you so much that he would do that? Joseph, in Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife comes on to him, he responds to her, he says, how could I do that to my master? After all he's done for me, rescuing me from prison, bringing me into his home, setting me over all that is his, how could I do that to him after he's been so good to me? And likewise, we say in the face of temptation of lust and sexual sin, how could I do that to my master? after he's been so good to me, after he's paid such a price, after he's rescued me from the prison of my sin, how could I do that to him? As we remember what he's done for us, we, we flee lust and sexual immorality. We flee from it. And how do we do that? Let's briefly look, lastly, at the command applied. Jesus applies this command in verses 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, and cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. And Jesus is so punk rock. Now, I I probably don't need to make this clear, but I, I will anyway. Jesus doesn't actually want you to tear out your eyes or cut off your hands. A second century church father, Origen, interpreted this text really rigidly and literally and actually castrated himself in the second century. Don't do that. Of course, what Jesus is calling us to here is not mutilation of our bodies, but what John Owen called the mortification of our flesh. It means putting to death our sinful natures, our sinful desires within. Colossians 3, 5 speaks of this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about here. And the metaphors he uses are not insignificant. Think about it. He talks about the eye and the hand. The eye has to do with what you look at, and the hand has to do with what you do. Whenever you look at someone with lustful intent, whenever you look at them, what are you looking with? Your eye. And of course, likewise, the actual act of adultery also corresponds to the metaphor of the hand. And notice that Jesus uses such graphic and strong language here. Why does he do that? Does he do that for mere shock value? I I think not. He uses such strong and graphic language because he wants it to be clear that those of us who have been brought into his kingdom and salvation are to do radical things in order to fight sin in our lives. We're called to do radical things. Like if there's a consistent pattern and habit of lust and sexual sin in your life, and you're not doing radical things to put to death the deeds of the body and to make no provision for the flesh, if you're not cutting off your hand and tearing out your eye, what are you doing? You know, I remember some time ago I had a close friend who was continually struggling to, to look at it, with looking at things on his phone that he shouldn't have been looking at. He was continually struggling with temptation and lust and pornography and eventually he grew so convicted and tired of it that he took his phone out to his garage and grabbed his hammer and he smashed his iPhone to pieces. That's right on. Like, having the convenience of a phone or a laptop or watching certain TVs, it's not worth an eternity in the lake of fire. Cut off your hand, <coughs> excuse me, tear out your eye. It's better to lose your hand or an eye than that your whole body go into hell. You might say, well, didn't Jesus pay for that sin, as you just said? Didn't, didn't he become that on the cross for me? so i can be forgiven and counted righteous if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ yes remember though that repentance and trust are conditions of receiving Christ and his salvation he only paid for the sins of the trusting and repentant repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life it literally means to turn to turn away from sin and turn to the risen Christ And this repentance is not just a repentance of action and deed. It's an act of the will and of the heart. It's a whole person repentance. It's not something that merely takes place at the beginning of the Christian life. It's something we have to do every single day. And let me be absolutely clear. In being called to lives of whole person repentance, Jesus doesn't call us to flee from sexual immorality to sexual morality. Like repentance is not turning from immorality to morality. Repentance is turning from immorality and sin to the crucified and risen Christ. So when you flee sexual immorality, don't run to sexual morality. Run into the arms of Jesus. Remember what he's done for you. Remember the price he's paid for you. Remember his broken body and shed blood. Remember that he suffered and was tortured and died because of his great love for you. And let that fuel you with such energy and inspiration to fight sin, to tear out your eye, to cut off your hand, to mortify your flesh, and to give him your heart completely. Let's pray. Fathers, we approach the table. Would you help it? Would you let it? Would you cause it to be to us the remembrance of Christ's broken body and poured out blood and communion with his body and blood that we might be filled with strength within to resist the devil and flee, to flee sexual immorality and to run continually into the arms of Jesus today, tomorrow, this week, in the weeks and months to come, uh, uh, until the return of Christ when he completes this good work within us. We need your help. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.